Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. My name is Roberta Peche from the Transverse Myelitis Association. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. We're very pleased to be joined by Sam Huge of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, TM and NMOSD program, who will be moderating our podcast today. Um, this podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via either our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis, or you can also send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Great. Thanks, Roberta. Our focus today is on back-to-school preparation for students with demyelinating diseases and the legal and neuropsychological perspectives with Dr. Lana Harder and Ms. Susan Chappé. Dr. Harder is a clinical neuropsychologist at Children's Medical Center in Dallas and associate professor at, univers at the University of Texas Southwestern. Dr. Harder specializes in the neuropsychological evaluation of pediatric patients from infancy to young adults with disorders of the central nervous system. Dr. Harder also serves as the co-director of the Children's Medical Center Dallas Pediatric Conquer Clinic. Today, we are also excited to welcome Ms. Susan Chappé, who is the legal director of the Medical Legal Partnership for Children Dallas housed on-site at Children's Medical Center. The Medical Legal Partnership approach builds a healthcare team able to identify, treat, and prevent health-harming legal needs for patients, clinics, and populations. Susan has legal expertise in special education and government benefits, in addition to practice experience with housing, family, and consumer law cases. She teaches and lectures regularly on public health topics for students, residents, and faculty in the Department of Pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center. She's a supervising attorney as well with Legal Aid of Northwest Texas. Thank you both for joining us today. Before we get started, please note that Ms. Susan Chappé can only provide general information about the topics. Although she cannot provide legal advice specific to or for a person, you can consult the resource sheet for information about locating legal services or attorneys that will be made available on the TMA website's resource library. So to start us off this afternoon, uh, Dr. Harder, what is the difference between a 504 plan and an IEP and how does one decide which one is more appropriate for their child? Thank you, Sam. And I, uh, before I answer that, just want to thank the TMA uh, for having us today to talk about a very important topic as we gear up to go back to school in several weeks. Um, so this question comes up all the time uh, in my practice and in my clinic. Um, and it's important to know the difference and really to know the language um, that schools speak when it comes to supporting our students in the classroom. Uh, so, you know, each of these, a 504 plan and IEP, come from um, federal law. Uh, we're lucky to have an expert today on the legal aspects of this, but um, in terms of the practical implications for each of these, um, I'll make a distinction between a couple of things. Um, for the 504 plan, um, we are thinking more about accommodating a student, um, so giving them things such as extra time, um, note-taking assistance, things of that nature, whereas for the IEP, which stands for Individual Education Program, um, we're looking at providing a, a greater level of support and often modifying the curriculum. 
So I kind of tend to think of it as a spectrum, so from no services at all, uh, all the way through a more comprehensive support through a five, excuse me, through an IEP with 504 falling somewhere in the middle. Um, so I talk to um, patients and families quite a bit about um, these plans and what might be most appropriate. In terms of deciding which one would be the best, um, we have to look at the specific child and what their needs are. And we can do this um, from completing a comprehensive evaluation. Uh, you know, for me, that's the neuropsychological evaluation where we can start to look at where the child is performing relative to their peers in lots of different areas. And that would help us decide um, which plan might be more appropriate. We don't have to do a, a big comprehensive evaluation for everyone. Perhaps their only needs are um, physical in nature, and maybe we can um, work with the accommodations plan, a 504 plan. So um, there are lots of different things families can do. They can um, speak to their um, medical treatment teams about how to make this decision, um, as well as work with the school. And schools do a great job, uh, generally, uh, in helping determine what would be most appropriate based on um, the student's particular needs. Great. That is a, I think that's one of those, those issues that can really confuse people jumping into the system, is where they fall into that spectrum of, of assistance. Um, so, uh, Follow-up to that question to Susan, are charter or public charter schools and or private or parochial schools held to the same considerations and, re and requirements as public schools? And how do we decide what services that a child needs in a school and how do you even begin that process? Thanks, Sam. So the, the first part of the question is, is easy. Any public school, so a charter school which is considered a public school, um, in our state, in Texas, all the charter schools are public. The answer is yes. All public schools are subject to both of the federal laws, both 504, which comes to us from a federal law called the Rehabilitation Act, and uh, the IEP, which comes to us from Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. So all public schools are subject to those laws because the laws are attached to federal financing which the public schools receive from the federal U.S. Department of Education. So because those laws kind of have um, that stick attached with that federal money, um, some private schools are not subject to 504. Um, specifically, 504 has exempted uh, religious-based schools. So the question for 504 becomes, does that uh, school receive a certain type of federal assistance from the U.S. Department of Education, and whether there's a carve-out exemption like there is for religious-based institutions. And unfortunately, with IDEA, the special education law, or the law which allows you to modify their curriculum, it does not apply to any private schools. So the public school district still has a duty to serve that child with a, with a disability. But in most instances, if the family has chosen to place their child in a private school, they're not going to be able to access the protections or the modifications from the public school district with the modifications. So as Dr. Harder said, um, because there's kind of two different goals with each type of plan, there's actually two different ways to determine from the school's perspective whether a child meets those qualifications for the laws. 
And I'll start with 504 because it's actually much simpler. With um, requesting accommodations or adjustments in how your student is taught or tested, you can start with a simple written request to the school. They may do what they call an assessment or evaluation, but it's more of gathering evidence and records and having a meeting, which is generally informal, um, with the school nurse, with the administrator, with the teacher, with the parent, and looking and seeing what the medical evidence supports or suggests is needed for the child to accommodate to make those adjustments in the classroom setting or with the assignments and the classwork the child is doing. So it's, it's fairly straightforward. It is a written plan, but it's not a battery of tests. Usually the medical evidence that's required is, is much uh, less in volume and in stringency than special education. With special education under IDEA, that's the modification. We're really changing the content of what the student is taught. We're creating a different standard for the child. Within that IEP, we're creating specific goals and objectives for that child to learn. So because of that, we need a lot more data. We need a lot more evidence. So as Dr. Harder said, that's where our neuropsych eval is helpful. Or in most instances, the families can access that. Their first step, which is a written request for an FIE, a full individual evaluation. And that FIE has multiple components. Some are informal measures of assessment for the child and some are actual formal measures such as cognition testing. Um, but it covers a wide range. That FIE is going to look at sociological factors. They're going to review the instruction the child has, has received, the performance the child's done in the classroom or in state assessments. They're going to look at interventions and accommodations perhaps the school's already used. They're going to look at a physical analysis to see what limitations the child might have, speech and language, emotional and behavior, academic achievement, motor abilities, intellectual, and also adaptive behavior. So it's very comprehensive. So with either of them, it starts with a written request from the parent. That's the best practice because the parent has the right to request it under the law for the child. It's certainly permissible for a doctor to write that letter for the parent to provide to the school, but the school might ignore it. So it's always best if the parent makes a written request, just says, my child has a disability, I suspect they need modifications or accommodations. It doesn't have to be specific. The parent doesn't have to pinpoint what the issue is, particularly if there hasn't been any neuropsych testing and the family's unsure of what cognitive challenges a child may have. So that's how you begin the process. Um, and then uh, it's much more formalized with special education in, in the meetings and then developing the plan. Um, 504, like I said, because it's really just adjustments to the setting in which the child's learning, it's usually a lot faster and a lot less formal process. Oh, very good. That, um, between the two of you, I think that's laid a good foundation of what the different kinds of plans are and how they work. and. Um, how you go about getting into that process. And there are a number of questions that have come in uh, very specific to, uh, to instances in the schools um, uh, pertaining to individualized plans or accommodations. And I'm hoping that I can uh, uh, kind of group them into different, into different categories that, that we might be able to help answer them uh, in a more global way and, and get to um, some of the details. Uh, 
But to start out with that, um, there are a number of questions that came in about in the school, once you have, uh, you're in there and trying to get plans and accommodations set up, um, if the school doesn't have nursing support services, um, is it a requirement for the school to provide some kind of nursing or medical professional services if the child needs it? For example, if they need a catheter assistance or need their blood pressure monitored because they have some kind of um, what's called autonomic dysreflexia or, or any kind of med administration, is there a requirement that schools have that uh, nursing service available? So this is Susan, and, and I'll um, be happy to answer that. Part of that is going to be answered by state law requirements. And the reason why is under IDEA, or the special education law, school health services are a related service that a child can access when they have an IEP, but it's literally that vague in the law. It just says school health service. It doesn't even say nursing service. And of course, it has to be appropriate and adjust, address the child's needs. Um, there's an overlay, though, in state law in most states of when nurses are required to be on campus and who is allowed to perform certain functions. So, unfortunately, that would be dependent on the particular state that the child's in and what, who could actually, under state licensing laws, perform those within their scope of license or training. Um, Certainly, just because the school lacks the staff doesn't mean they're excused from providing it. In other words, the school can never say, well, we can't provide that level of instruction or that level of support because we lack the staff or the money. That's not an allowable excuse under the law. But sometimes I find that families want a higher level of service or professional than the, than the law may require, and, and that, can, that can be difficult because sometimes we want to ensure that our child has the best trained professional taking care of them when they're not in our home, but unfortunately the law doesn't always give us that as a remedy. So for that, those particular issues you'd have to look at state law and see what's provided. I know for example in Texas we now have new requirements relating to when a school must for diabetic students. Um, so there's certain pockets in state law where you get um, better access to nurses than you might typically expect and that's come about because we've had so many situations in Texas and rural settings where they lack a school nurse and they were discriminating against children with diabetes because someone else on campus didn't want to help with insulin injections and whatnot. So, so your best answer there is to look to state law and specifically see when school nurses are required on campus. Hmm. So outside of the the nursing specialty of medical care, when, there were some questions that came in um, asking about having specific aides accompany um, uh, their children during the school day or during parts of the school day or some kind of advocate that is there to assist um, the child as they go through their school day. And at what point um, uh, would you all recommend that that is something that a parent might look into for their child and are there requirements that schools um, uh, that schools must follow to to accommodate this kind of aid or um, uh, uh, supply this kind of aid to to a child? Any um, any recommendations or or thoughts about that? 
So again, here we're stuck with the law kind of being vague. So one of the related services is orientation and mobility under um, IDEA, and also that's a, an accommodation or adjustment that can be in a 504 plan. I think if you anticipate at any time that a child needs that aid, that you should make that request early on. Um, that way, the, any logistics can be worked out again with staffing issues or if the school's going to claim they don't have the funding for it or whatnot. You want to know that up front before your child needs that individual to assist them in the school setting. The challenge becomes if it's an intermittent need. In other words, if it's not a daily requirement and they don't have someone on staff who can readily be pulled to assess, assist the child, how, that had, how that's done going forward. All of these things are just open to negotiation. The law is very broad because it covers a whole range of disabilities and needs. And so we don't have a lot of direction within the federal law or even in state guidance here in Texas that's specific about when a one-on-one -on -one aid is required. Um, it's, it's similar to families wanting one-on-one -on -one instruction for their child because they know it's best. Unfortunately, what we're looking at with both of these federal laws is a, a free and appropriate public education. And, I always tell my families, I wish it said the free best, but it doesn't. It's the free and appropriate. And appropriate really is where all um, the, this gray area lies. So that's just a conversation to have as early on with the school. See what their staffing limitations are. Ask if there's different ways to address it. Um, and if the campus doesn't know, you go up the chain of command. You call the Office of Special Education for the school district. A lot of times the campus is limited by who they have on, on their grounds. In other words, they don't know if they can access or pull down other uh, sources of staffing. I've had several situations in which um, campus principals have not known that they could say, hey, we need a highly qualified instructor in mathematics on my campus. Um, what's the process to do that? In other words, they think the staffing that they get at the beginning of the year from the district is static. And they forget that that's not the point of these two laws. It's not the point of any educational setting. Um, but they kind of forget they have that as a resource. So oftentimes, if you're struggling because the principal's telling you, we don't have a nurse or we don't have a one-on-one -on -one aide, the best thing to do is go to the district and really see what the staffing resources are. Because in some instances, they'll realize that they need to do that for the child, and they can post it and try to hire someone. Mm. So um, when it comes to actually hiring an advocate uh, for the child in the school, um, that can oftentimes be costly or difficult to afford, um, but might be necessary depending on the situation. Is there a recommended um, source or resource as to where you can find, uh, where a parent or family can find good advocates? Sure. So the resource sheet that y'all mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast here, we've included several things for our families today. We've given a link to the U.S. Department of Education's website about 504, which is very comprehensive, has a lot of information about what 504 rights are, and also what to do when families are struggling with the school district and have a dispute to resolve. We've also given you a link for um, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, also on the Department of Ed uh, website. I've given some specific uh, resources to locate um, resources if you have problems. So at the bottom of that list, I've given you uh, 
a link to the American Bar Association. It's a voluntary membership throughout the United States. We don't have a national licensing for lawyers in this country, but that's kind of a good clearinghouse. You can search it by state, and there's two things you can find. There's legal aid programs like mine that serve low-income families, which are generally families under 200% of the federal poverty level. But then there's also lawyer referral services in every state. And these are services in which you can locate attorneys with relevant practice, and generally they'll consult with you for the first 30 minutes for $20. So it's kind of a low-cost consultation to see, um, you know, answers to basic questions, get some guidance, um, and, and get some direction perhaps in seeing about hiring an advocate. Um, beyond that, I've given the protection and advocacy program. So through money through the federal government, each state has to have a protection and advocacy program to support personal and civil rights of people with developmental disabilities. So those programs typically offer free legal services as well with different income uh, uh, requirements. So I've given folks a link to find that. I've also just given a federal government website that's new that has all that. But the, the reality is this, there's not a lot of advocates that specialize in special education. Um, I don't know why, I find it fascinating and very rewarding, but sadly there's not a lot of private lawyers that do it. So for the families that aren't eligible for free services, yes, it can be very expensive. But one thing I would recommend is even though this is an area of law where non-attorneys are allowed to practice, there's administrative law areas where um, paralegals or certain trained professionals are allowed to practice. This is one of them. I always recommend that families at least consult with an attorney. A lot of times I've found that non-attorney advocates or paralegals kind of get training on the job or maybe less formally um, and, and less structured and so you're really kind of stuck with their force of their personality being their expertise. That's not to say that some aren't highly trained and um, and well supervised, but that you don't have the licensing requirements, you don't have continuing legal education requirements like attorneys do, but but I feel your pain. I know how expensive uh, lawyers are. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing, but I think one thing you have to ask any advocate you hired for your child is what is their, what is their style? You know, see how they're communicating with you, see if they're listening to your questions and they're answering them, see if they're dismissive, See if they promise a lot. You know, if they're overly promising, you might question, you know, what their negotiation style. And kind of one tip, you know, in, in medicine, we always tell people, ask if they practice evidence-based medicine. <laughs> um, when you're looking for a clinician or particularly a therapist or a counselor, I always tell people, ask if they use interest-based negotiation. Um, because if they do that, that means they're going to kind of look at the limitations of the school district and kind of be reasonable, but they're also going to do a lot of work trying to uncover the interest of the school district, maybe why the school district isn't providing what your child needs in the classroom. Because I found in, in my 18 years of practice, that's my most successful approach to negotiations, is kind of looking at the interest of both parties, seeing where I have some overlap, and then advising my family on the choices we have given the, the interest or limitations rather than facing a long battle and, and going through um, litigation to get what the child needs. Because unfortunately, the reality is that can take a long time and your child's suffering while we're trying to, to get the school district to provide what's needed. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's very good 
global information about this. You don't want to you want to make sure that if you have somebody there advocating for you and your child and somebody who you trust is is working with your best interest and is smart about uh how they're interacting with the school district and um uh, unfortunately that can be harder to come by than we might like um in terms of uh other questions that came through about accommodations in the classroom setting or in the school setting um they kind of uh, grouped into a couple different categories. Um, one of them was kind of particularly in the schoolhouse setting, where there might be physical um, issues that uh, that the children were coming across. For example, issues with um, bathroom doors and not having uh, um, handicapped accessible um, uh, ways to get into the bathroom. For example, the the buttons to open the doors or uh, issues with elevators where the elevators require a key to um, to access but because of uh, um, the high cervical lesion of the child they don't have good uh, help um, uh, they can't work their hands very to, to manage the key and so um, with those kinds of situations and other in inside the schoolhouse limitations that might exist what are the requirements for the school to accommodate or change the the physical makeup of the schoolhouse in certain instances to provide for the child the children in question um, and are there any particular kind of physical limitations that they don't have to um, to deal with so again this is this is where the law is not very helpful to us when we're trying to advocate around these areas with the students. Um, and I'll just give you language out of 504. Basically, at the elementary and secondary level, the accommodations have to be made that, that help the students um, and meet the students with disabilities needs as adequately as those without disabilities are met. It's literally that vague. So with any instance around kind of what I call architecture or access within the school, Sometimes the best setting to address that's not in 504 or not in your IEPC meeting um, because there could be other students that are impacted besides yours. So anything that's architecture-based kind of also involves Americans with Disability Acts and structural requirements. Now I've long practiced po poverty law and public health law, so I by no means am I an expert on ADA. But again, that's somewhere where someone in the um, the school district's going to be a better resource for you because they're going to be on top of that. They're used to state inspections. They're used to providing reports to the state education agencies that they're in compliance with the ADA. So anything that's about structure and environment, I would say, you know, start talking at the school district level. And it might be that you're talking with the, the Office of Special Education or Special Populations again because your child's receiving 504 or an IEP. Um, and and it's 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 not quite a cost benefit analysis, but you know they have to look at what um, what the school's providing, and 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 it's literally that analysis: are are we discriminating against the child with a disability, or are we meeting their needs as adequately as those without? So um, it may not lead to a whole lot of uh, structural um, changes, but it, it it might actually fall into one of those um, situations where an aid's used. For something that's intermittent, maybe like the elevator, 
things around bathrooms and restrooms though, usually those, like I said, because they impact other children, usually those can be addressed because it's not just an accommodation for your child. It, it, it may not be up to state code or the federal law based on architecture requirements. And I just apologize, that's just not my area of law to speak beyond that, that general mm -hmm. answer. Um, is there any, um, with what you know about, about how this works, is there any, is it the same principle with anything uh, outside of the schoolhouse itself, for example, ground um, where uh, uh, there might be issues with accessibility, wheelchair accessibility? There's a specific question that came in about um, how there was uh, uh, in one child's um, playground area, um, a big portion of the playground was down a hill and that the wheelchair of the child was not, it was not safe to go down there with the wheelchair. And there was some conversation with the school about um, uh, having some space at the top of the hill for playground and um, some recess activities for uh, the child in the wheelchair. Um, and so in terms of accommodating to get the child down the hill or things of that nature, um, is it the same principles that apply? It is. It's, it's 504 and ADA as far as accessibility. The one nice thing about special education law, IDA, it does cover recreation. So you have a little bit more room um, to ask for something that, in other words, you know, you can't leave a child inside the classroom and miss out on resource, recess because you don't have an alternative. Um, same thing with physical education with PE. You can have adaptive PE, you can waive PE. That is considered part of instruction. So I don't know the answer about pl the playground excel itself, you know, what the law would require for the playground if the playground needed to be rehabbed or changed just like inside the building. But certainly recreation and an area to have um, you know, resource, recess would be something that would be required under the law. So whether that be, like I said, changes to an existing playground or, you know, a comparable um, or a comparable and appropriate area for our, our children with, with deficits, that, that's definitely provided by both special education and 504. So again, it has to meet the needs of that disabled child as adequately as, as those without disabilities. So, um, you know, it may be a, a different type of play area, um, but it may not mean necessarily changing the one play area to accommodate the needs of the disabled child. And then there's some considerations too about not stigmatizing the child um, or isolating them. So again, that's something that's great to address at the district level because there are surely more than one child, child being affected by that lack of access to that playground. Hmm. And then uh, there are a couple questions that came in more pertaining to extracurricular activities provided by the school or maybe in particular field trips. Uh, there's a question that came in uh, uh, about um, from a parent saying that their child couldn't go on go to certain field trips uh, either because the transportation was not accessible for their wheelchair to go on the field trip that was provided by the school or the place where they were going on the field trip was not uh, accessible for a wheelchair. Um, in, and in which case the school told them that the child doesn't need to go, doesn't have to go and they can take the day off of school. And there's concern from the parents about 
um, the fairness of that and concern about um, um, having uh, resources for their child. So in terms of uh, uh, extracurricular activities or these kinds of field trips, things outside of the school curriculum, um, but that are valuable for children, uh, how much recourse does uh, do do parents have in in advocating for the interests of their child, or how much does the school require to include uh, uh, these kinds of children into their extracurricular uh, activities? So the the loss is somewhat the same here again, just like these other things we've been talking about. So both IDA or 504. We don't have a guarantee for inclusiveness. You know, we have, we have a promise that we're not going to discriminate against the children with disability, and we have the the promise and the hope that we're going to accommodate their needs as if, or as as well as we're accommodating those without disabilities. So I think I think things such as transportation, you know, getting to the field trip, that would be easier for the law to answer. You know, the school would have an obligation to provide that. The tricky part is just like with the playground, when you come to the type of field trip, you know, how far the school's supposed to go in designing a field trip that will accommodate the student and not make them feel left out, um, particularly if, if where they're going for the field trip has some, um, some physical or environmental um, um, characteristics that might harm the child. So I'm thinking of, of, of a patient with a seizure disorder who may not be able to tolerate high heat and direct sunlight um, and field trips that are outside. So again, this is just one of those gray areas. Um, but, but both 504 and special education say that you have to address recreation. And then 504 has some great language about extracurricular activities, school-sponsored clubs, athletics, and whatnot. There's some limitations in that you can't necessarily change um, the requirements you know, if there were if there were certain type of academic requirements to be in an extracurricular club, I'm thinking of like National Honor Society. You may not be able to modify that because of, with the force of federal law. But you know, if it was getting to the meetings or participating in the meetings or the activities of the club, certainly the 504 plan or the IEP could address that. So it's really unfortunate that the law can't be more specific. Um, and I guess the only way I can say as a lawyer to, to, to explain why it's kind of vague is we're really trying to look at all kinds of children with all kinds of disabilities. So if we had any more specifics, you know, it'd be much more complicated longer than it is. So a lot of times the law kind of sticks us with these things like um, reasonable accommodations like what you hear under fair housing or the ADA or, um, you know, appropriate education and, and unfortunately doesn't guarantee us that in inclusion for our students in all activities. I wish, I wish we as lawyers could figure out a way to draft a law that would be guarantee for inclusiveness. Yeah. It, it, is, um, it is unfortunate the way that the way you explain it in that way, but, and, and maybe correct my thinking if I'm wrong, but it also sounds like because there is some vagueness or open-endedness, maybe better say, to the laws, it, it kind of gives parents and, and caregivers room for negotiation and room for argument and justification for what is reasonable. And it um, allows, in some ways, for uh, particular instances um, um, to go through rather than you know, stymieing uh, what may or may not be done because everybody's a little bit different. That might be a, 
a positive spin on this a little bit. Um, absolutely. absolutely. And I think the challenge for families is it's so hard, but the more pre-planning you can do, the better. You know, if you can ask the school officials at the beginning of the school year, what are the typical field trips, and start addressing it early on, that's a lot easier to kind of hope to come to a, a good resolution for your child than waiting until, you know, a week before the field trip. It's hard. It is really hard to invest the time and take care of all your child's needs. But particularly with something like that, you may find that a little bit of advanced planning will save you a lot of heartache um, because a lot of times the school officials will just get mad and say, well, it's too late for us to do anything. Whereas if you addressed it a month or two ahead of time, you might have had some recourse or opportunity for recourse at the district level if the campus gave you pushback. Mm. Well, I feel like uh, the conversation's been pretty one-sided with Susan thus far. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn some questions over to Dr. Harder that might be more in your wheelhouse. Um, so, so for one, how much does the school really need to know about any child's medical history in order to serve them appropriately? Great question, and uh, thank you for throwing some questions my way and giving Susan a break. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I think this is a really important um, matter that families should consider very carefully as they think about releasing um, medical records or other things to the school. So uh, what we always like to say is, you know, um, I think it's appropriate to limit the information uh, to what what is needed for um, getting the accommodations or the services. So. Um, having a, as opposed to having the school get a full release of, for all medical records from the hospital, have them only um, uh, give the school a letter from the physician that says briefly what the medical condition is, what the functional impact of that condition is, and what accommodations may be needed um, as a result. So that is a way to kind of manage what information is going out there as opposed, again, to signing a big release where the the school can contact a medical facility to just get everything, um, which is which is too much, um, is likely too much information. So um, I think that's something that is also um, personal and that parents uh, and families should talk about ahead of time, how they want to approach that. And if there's a, um, some kind of conflict between a teacher, um, and the child or the family in question about, you know, not providing the accommodations or uh, just, you know, some conflict that might occur because there's a, there's a question about having accommodations. Um, is there any tips or tricks or thoughts that you uh, would want to give the parents about handle that conflict without jeopardizing the student-teacher relationship? Sure, and unfortunately we come across this scenario uh, way too much. Um, and, you know, what we recommend is um, kind of looking at the situation to see what may be going on. So in the event that a teacher is not for providing an accommodation in the 504 plan, kind of looking into why that might be um, and making sure that the teacher has the information needed to kind of understand what's going on and why this accommodation um, is needed. Um, you know, 
thinking too in terms of kind of a hierarchy of steps, it's always nice to be able to resolve this directly with the teacher by or the, the team at the school that you've worked with to set up the plan. Um, but certainly if, if uh, things are not being resolved, the child is not gaining access to accommodations, we have to look at taking it up um, another level, thinking about talking to the administrators within the school. And perhaps there's a, a trusted um, individual in the school that, um, you know, a student or family feels comfortable talking to, if that's a counselor or a school psychologist, um, to kind of problem solve and figure out, um, you know, what can be done to address this um, without, you know, continuing to escalate the situation. Um, but I would also just keep tucked away um, that if, you know, you're not getting anywhere at the school level, considering going to the district, Susan's mentioned talking to um, the special education administrators, um, and then, you know, at the very top of this, um, you know, escalating it to a formal complaint, uh, which could be put through Office for Civil Rights, particularly in the example of the, um, the 504 accommodations, um, if those are not being um, provided. So uh, those would be some things that, that come to mind. You hope it doesn't get to that point. Um, I will say that a conversation that comes up pretty regularly with our patients and families, you know, um, there's always going to be in life that one person or those few people that um, may be a little bit more difficult to work with or we're going to, you know, hit a roadblock. So this is also an opportunity to, to problem solve and troubleshoot and um, learn about uh, self-advocacy and how we can, um, you know, work best with, with our teachers or with um, the people in our lives that, um, that we have to work with. So um, it's also, you know, a, a good opportunity to practice those skills as well. Not, nice silver lining, Dr. Harder. Uh, every <laughs> every roadblock is just an opportunity to get better, right? That's right. <laughs> um, uh, she did, yeah. Sam, she did say something that made me think of an example. I think sometimes when we're advocating for our children, we forget that we do have people at the school who care. So when she mentioned finding a, a trusted person at the school, you know, sometimes you need to kind of have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the different people that come in contact with your child without asking them to endorse your solution. In other words, talk with the nurse about the problems you're having with the, the teacher and ask the nurse how she might be able to shed light in a, in a, in a group meeting either with the 504 team or the, the IEP um, team to shed light. And what comes to mind is I had a child who somehow, despite hearing loss in one ear, a lot of people that were encountering this child did not know it. When I brought it to their attention, even though it was everywhere in the documents, um, the teacher admitted she was just letting the child self-select where to sit in the classroom and would just shout louder so the child could hear her. So. I, I gave up in trying to convince her this wasn't appropriate and I kind of had a sidebar conversation with someone from audiology. So the next meeting we went to, I just gently asked the person from audiology to explain why a child with hearing loss may not want to be singled out, might not sit in the front, and why physically shouting at the child would not be helpful. And it was much better received from that teacher, from a colleague, than from me as the advocate or the parent that had been telling her this for months. So I think sometimes kind of in the in the heat of us being passionate, we forget that there's other people that if we that if we just enlist their support, particularly if they have specialized knowledge, they can be instrumental in getting someone who's not 
providing the modification of their accommodations done, whether it be an administrator, the nurse, so on, a specialized service, just remember they really are a team. And even though you might find a lot of antagonism from one particular individual, it's usually that stressed out teacher that has the big classroom. If you find other professionals that are encountering your children um, throughout the day in the school setting, they can often voice those needs as well or better than we can as advocates. And just mm -hmm. to uh, add one uh, comment, I'm glad that uh, that you said that. Um, oftentimes, uh, we can look to our um, medical treatment teams, the people in our um, medical centers, the children's hospitals that you go to, uh, particularly because these are rare conditions. Um, you know, there there won't be uh, the teacher that's going to know all about ADEM or all about NMO. So we need um, to do our part on our side of it and participate in those meetings if invited. Um, I always offer to families that I can uh, participate in the 504 IEP meetings. Our neurologist um, has done the same, uh, particularly in, in a situation uh, like the one we're talking about. So um, remembering too to, to bring in your uh, partners from the treatment team to engage in the conversation as well because again it's, it's very unlikely that uh, school personnel will know much about these conditions and having it validated um, by an expert I think is uh, can go a long way for schools. Yeah. And a lot of times the schools are flexible about professionals phoning in so it's not like you're asking your treating provider to physically come and sit through the whole meeting but to dial in at an appropriate time or the committee call out when they need to hear from that professional. Mm -hmm. Uh, as is in most instances, education is, is key and communication is key. The more that we can educate the stakeholders about what's going on or what the reason behind the um, accommodation request is, uh, I would say generally the, the, the more amenable people are to help in, in making things happen in a reasonable way. So education is key. I think we can agree. Um, and so we, we talked uh, a good b bit about um, conflicts or issues that might arise between families and the schools. Um, there was one question that came in I thought was interesting. Uh, how, how do you, they use the word convince, uh, how do you convince your child to use needed available accommodations when they resist? Um, I imagine that especially as uh, um, kids are going into high school and are more self-conscious, um, if they need accommodations, then it can be difficult sometimes for them to follow through with them because they just want to, quote, be like everybody else. And um, Any recommendations uh, that you have? Do you have any recommendations on to the parents about how to speak with their children um, who are dealing with this? Dr. Harder? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I love this question. And we uh, talked about talk about this a lot um, in the clinical setting. Um, so I would say, you know, most uh, school-age children uh, don't want to be different, right? They don't want to stand out from their peers, as you said. Um, and so we have to really think about the individual child and, um, and what's going on for them. So if uh, the medical condition that they're managing um, is is something observable by others that's something to take into account so are they already kind of in a situation where they're feeling so different um, how can we minimize singling them out when it it comes to accommodating their needs 
Um, and I very routinely uh, both put this in my evaluation recommendation report um, and talk to schools about this and families that, you know, um, and depending on the situation, that we want to do everything we can not to single them out. Um, at the same time, some of our accommodations do require um, you know, potentially removing them from the class for a small group or individual test taking, say in a reduced distraction environment, um, or giving them extended time. So just kind of the nature of that accommodation will um, single them out, but I think we can also get creative and think about ways um, to manage these situations so that we're kind of minimizing that. And so um, uh, directly addressing and validating the concern that the student has. Um, one of my biggest recommendations is engaging them in the student in the process. So um, talking to them, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, or in a small group with a teacher, with a counselor, um, they are invited to some of the, the 504, the IEP meetings um, as they get older. And in our clinic, we talk a lot about transition and that it's almost never too early to talk about um, transition kind of to more independence and we're always looking to um, give our uh, students and patients more um, more responsibility to be self-advocates to be able to talk about what's going on with them what their condition is how it affects them and what helps them and so I may create um, a list of recommendations for a student and they may say well you know, three out of the 10 of these are probably going to be helpful. So I look to them in my feedback sessions to engage in the process to talk to me about the functional impact of their condition in the classroom setting. Say when it comes to taking exams, are they running out of time? When it's time to take notes and keep up with a lecturer, are they able to, to do that in an effective way or could they benefit from note taking assistance? So I'm looking to them to sort of partner with me on how to address their specific needs um, because we know every case is a little bit different and I think by engaging them in this conversation and creating that list of accommodations that's going to um, empower them to a degree and give them some ownership over um, what decisions have been made. So we want them in that conversation kind of as soon as, as a, appropriate based on their developmental level um, and having them understand why we're doing these things or why we're recommending these things. Um, you know, we may never be able to convince them. We may never be able to have them feel 100% comfortable. But I think just having the sensitivity to this notion of, you know, it's, it's hard to be singled out, especially at this age, I think that's the first step. And, and having that um, conversation um, privately with a teacher, um, making others aware that we, we need to minimize that and kind of um, problem solve. And then feel free to work with your, um, your team when you go to clinic visits or if you're working with a neuropsychologist on what are the best ways to do that. So those are some ideas that, that come to mind. Mm -hmm. I think um, especially uh, when you're talking about kids as they become adolescents and going through that natural you know, urge to strive for independence and um, that we see in, uh, with, with adolescence, it's you have to strike the balance between um, looking out for what is best for them and their education and their physical um, safety in many ways and then also allowing them to, to form their uh, independence. And uh, I, I think to reiterate what you said, Dr. Harder, it's um, um, really, really striking that balance and um, um, finding the ways to bring them to be a part of the decisions and empower them 
uh, in this decision-making process to have that independence but also be thinking about you know what's best for them I think that that is uh, very powerful in many ways um, I'm just gonna a, add, add one thing if you don't mind Sam mm -hmm. go for it I, as an advocate I also try to remember that the child's still a child so I also try to have good conversations once my kiddos hit about age 12 and ask them in their own words what they want. So if they're not comfortable going to that meeting, or if they're not comfortable voicing it, mm -hmm. then I can voice that for them. I think sometimes we, we, we forget to ask them, where's, where's your limits? You know, we know you feel stigmatized and singled out because of your accommodation. Where are you nervous about self-advocacy? Because I think that's a great opportunity for parents or hired or retained advocates to kind of model that to the child so they see that they're not having to defend themselves. And that mm -hmm. kind of goes back when you asked what to look for in a, as an advocate. You want an advocate who's cool-headed and can voice what you want. You know, when I go to meetings, I tell my parents and my students, you shouldn't have to say anything. If I've done my job and I understand your interests and what's important in your goals, my job is to communicate that for you, to take that pressure off. So just as I try to take the pressure off the parent, you know, I think sometimes as parents we have to make sure we take that pressure off the child, even if even if they want to do it, and say, you know, it's okay if, if you need others to be an, an advocate. So like Dr. Harder was saying, you know, encouraging them to talk to a, a teacher they trust, so then maybe that teacher can be their voice to show them that they're not alone. They have people that care about them, and as they're learning to find their voice, they have other people that literally can be that, that voice with kind of model how to do it in a way where the child doesn't feel like they're fighting for what they need. And then as far as like the embarrassment factor, I experienced that a lot, particularly with high school kiddos that suddenly have an, a, an acute condition and suddenly need 504 special ed for the first time in their life. And I try to get them to look long term and say, okay, what do you want to do after high school? I realize this is cumbersome and stigmatizing now, but what do you do? What are your goals? And showing them that if we invest now in, in getting the educational support and accommodations they need, they're going to be much more successful once they get to college and then for independent living and not having to depend as much if we do it up front right when that need is critical. Mm -hmm. um. We are closing in to the end of the hour. Um, I wanted to ask one more question of Dr. Harder before we uh, wrap everything up. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting question. And honestly, I think it could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, but uh, if Dr. Harder maybe could, could speak to a little bit about this, I think that would be nice. Um, so how do you know the difference between the neuropsychological manifestations of TM, NMO, and ADEM and quote-unquote normal issues that children face growing up. And I would add to that, um, when you're looking at accommodations in a school setting, um, outside of physical uh, issues that might be there, looking at cognitive issues that might be, um, um, uh, be coming from any of these acute situations, uh, how, how, one, like I said, do you go about identifying what is something that's TM or NMO or ADEM related uh, neuropsychologically versus something that is um, might be expected from normal, quote unquote, uh, children during their development. 
this is a fantastic question, and you're correct. We could do an entire podcast on this. Um, and actually, we've touched on this topic uh, in some of the previous podcasts, um, so I will do my best to uh, give a brief answer. Um, so, you know, this is my challenge as a neuropsychologist um, specializing in these conditions. So um, I will say, and as this community is well aware, um, we are only uh, gradually accumulating knowledge about these conditions and how they affect um, individuals from a neuropsychological perspective. So um, we're still figuring out what that looks like, and we don't have uh, associated cognitive profiles that match up with each condition. So that's really kind of where we are right now um, in the field and in our understanding. Um, the other thing to note, as everyone too is aware, is that um, these conditions come with a lot of other um, potential symptoms that can serve to undermine our neuropsychological uh, performance. So um, fatigue and pain, uh, mood-related symptoms, any of these can affect um, how clearly we're able to think, how well we can pay attention, retain information, all those things that are important for learning. So, um, you know, it's a lot of different variables to kind of sort through and untangle as we try to answer questions that our families bring in about how TM or NMO or ADEM are affecting a child, um, say, in a classroom setting. Um, so I think the way that we approach this question um, is through a careful evaluation and a careful timeline um, of development, um, onset of medical symptoms, and just looking at changes over time. Also understanding um, the patient's background, their genetic history, what were they at risk for before these medical conditions came into the picture. So, you know, we can never uh, perfectly answer this question with 100% certainty, but we can start to um, to figure these things out with a, a detailed, thorough, um, comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation. And it's the information derived from an evaluation like that that will drive our recommendations for the, the support services we've been talking about today. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I think we could spend some more time on this topic, but that, that's my um, general answer at 11.59. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Harder. Um, so uh, we're at the end of the hour. I wanted to thank you both for your uh, uh, expertise today and um, wanted to give it back to you guys for just one more last thought, uh, global thought about um, accommodations and going back to school for uh, the kiddos that we that we treat um, uh, with NMO and TM and ADEM and other disorders. Um, uh, uh, Susan, would you like to give some final thoughts? Sure. I'm just very privileged to have been able to talk with you, and I just want to remind you about that resource sheet that we created. You know, it's very complicated when 504, when ADA, when all these laws apply. The most straightforward one's kind of special education, but the federal government has lots of explanations, particularly if you're concerned about what can be done in a private or parochial school. Um, I just want to I, I want to encourage families not to give up. I realize that. This can be a year-in, year-out battle for their children, but you really are investing in education for your child, which is which is the best possible way you can um, support them, particularly when they have um, a chronic health condition that they're facing consequences from. So I just wanted to encourage you 
not to get discouraged, not to feel like you're a crazy person because mm -hmm. you feel like you're always arguing when you're talking with the school. That's typical. It happens for me as an advocate. So just, just take pride that you care about your child's education and you're doing the best. And just realize there are groups and individuals that can at least give you some consultation, whether it be the medical providers, whether it be a legal advocate or um, an association such as TMA, you know, don't don't hesitate to ask for support. There's so many of us that, that admire what you're doing for your children, your families, and, and we're happy to support you in any way you can. We can. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Harder, yeah. any other last thoughts? Yeah, I would certainly echo uh, what Susan has said um, about our patients and families, and I just encourage you to reach out to your treatment teams, to resources through the TMA. Um, I think being part of a network uh, of people that understand these conditions and, and know what they are um, is a really important thing for our, our kids and families. Um, we'll be at attending the uh, TMA summer camp coming up, and I think that's a, an excellent resource uh, for our, our patients and families to connect, um, and that that's just a powerful experience uh, for those living with um, rare uh, conditions. So. Um, in the way of resources, I wanted to mention that we will um, be sharing something to post on the website, which are um, school guides that give a little bit of information. It's a, a two-page brief summary um, that um, would go over TM or ADEM and just very briefly um, and give some ways that that might show up in a classroom, some recommendations that may help address concerns. And we know it's not a one-size-fits-all resource, but it's a great tool to get the conversation going with your school so they can uh, have a point of reference um, to get started on um, planning for the school year. And uh, I just, with that, want to say uh, best of luck in the, the new school year, and uh, thank you again for having us. Mm -hmm. Yes, thanks again to Dr. Harder and Ms. Chappé for their time and uh, expertise that they've uh, uh, given to the community today. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listening and everyone who sent in questions. They were great questions. I hope that we were able to help address um, uh, uh, some, if not all of them. And uh, um, I hope everybody has a good and a safe week.